So we've been doing a, uh, this is the third and final evening in a series we've been doing, the last two Thursdays and tonight, on the topic of hatred, greed, and delusion. So I just want to mention what we've done and then pick it up and continue on. This idea of hatred, greed, and delusion, those three are sometimes called the three poisons. And basically they are the forces in the mind that really cause all of our problems, all of our troubles, that, 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 that um, the places where we get caught and stuck and end up struggling. And so we'll come back as we wrap it up tonight to just and talk about why, why are hatred and green delusion. I think that'll be clear tonight if for any of you who, who haven't been here, why those are, are difficulties. So we talked about the idea of hatred and actually it's greed, hatred and delusion is the way it's normally said in that order. It doesn't really matter. So we'll, we'll mention them again, what they really are. But uh, tonight we're picking up with the third of the three, this delusion, which can be thought of as ignorance also. So you're thinking, well, what is that? And then how, that's the one that really fuels the other two. The greed, the hatred um, come because cause of some kind of ignorance or delusion, something we're not seeing clearly or a mistaken view of things. That's the way it's normally talked about. So classically, it can be uh, delusion can, or ignorance is sometimes is thought of as ignorance of the Four Noble Truths. That's, that's a list that uh, many of you are familiar with, but some of you may not be familiar with. So I'm going to say a little about that tonight. And to really understand the Four Noble Truths, there's another list you have to understand. It, it's, not, it's not as bad, it's not as complex as it sounds. It'll all come together. But it, there's, it's sometimes called, it's another kind of um, heavy sounding name, the three characteristics of existence. So that sounds like a lot, three characteristics of existence. So I want to say a little bit about that because um, ignorance of the three characteristics leads to a delusion in the way we view the world. And out of that, it fuels what's called the greed and the hatred. The greed is the clinging, the grasping, coming out of that desire and wanting to hold on to pleasant experiences. And the flip side, the aversion, that's the hatred of wanting to push away the unpleasant. And so the idea is that um, we are constantly buffeted back and forth by, by just our lives, by all the ups and downs and changing experiences of the world, and we don't rest at peace. And we, we find ourselves in a struggle a lot. Um, so um, that's the idea. And you can just look into your own life, and if you're like uh, most of us, and um, this will vary for all of us, you'll probably see that um, life is a mix, that there are times of happiness and joy and just an ease of being and things are going well. And then there's times when um, there's plenty of difficulties and challenge and suffering in life and that most of us have both. Um, some of us have a lot more of one than the other depending on our lives, but I think almost everyone um, you know, I hope everyone's experienced some happiness and joy uh, at least sometime in life. And um, I know everyone's experienced, knows what it is to suffer or have some kind of challenges or difficulties. 
Um, and so the question is, is it possible to find some kind of liberation or freedom or place of ease of being in the midst of this life then, with its ups and downs, with its challenges, with its joys, with its sorrows, with all of that, can we find a way to um, get through all of this uh, without so much of a struggle? That's where it's trying to head us, this idea of freedom or liberation. So let me say a few things about this list I mentioned called the three characteristics of existence. So if you stick around the Dharma scene long enough, you'll hear this list a lot. It's, it's kind of a big deal. And uh, the first of these characteristics is um, what's called impermanence. And basically, um, it's just saying, it's actually two levels to it. One is, we, is just what it means that that Nothing lasts forever. And I think everybody knows that that's true. Problem is we don't live our lives as if it's true. Right? So, um, you can pick anything. You know, uh, our bodies is a perfect example. Right? What is it that happens with our bodies? They get older, they get sick, and eventually they're going to die. It's not wrong or bad or anything going wrong. It's just the way things are. Right? If we don't see that, if we don't really come to some terms with that and some peace about it, we're naturally going to suffer. And as the body ages, and I talked about that a little a few weeks ago around uh, clinging, and um, I won't go back into all of it, but I got a lot of laughs, but I wasn't really trying to about some of the struggles I went through. You know, even if I'm not, so some of you here are older than I am, and some younger. I'm 53, but, you know, for those of you who are younger, let me tell you, uh, even if you exercise and don't smoke or drink or whatever, you know, whatever the healthy things are and eat fruits and vegetables and do yoga and do everything. When your body's 53, it's just not going to be the same body you had when it was 30. And that's just the way it is. And so um, um, I was talking to someone just today who uh, uh, had a big bandage or, or some, some something... Uh, bandaging up his wrist and his hand. And he said, yeah, he didn't know what happened. He's just, uh, looks like he's in his 60s. And he was doing, went to the gym to work out and did a little something. And all he knows is his hand. It kind of, this must have sprained it or strained it. He didn't even know what happened. It just, all of a sudden, any slightest movements just hurt. Right? And I was telling him how, yeah, you know, some days I, I notice for myself, now and then I'll wake up some morning and something just hurts for, for no apparent reason. <laughs> you know? So we could go on and on about the body, but the, the point is I think every one of us it's just natural as human beings, you know? Like we don't want our bodies to go old and get sick. You know? We don't want to die. We don't want to suffer. But 
It's just what happens with the body. So if we don't really understand and come to terms and actually some peace around this idea of, of this impermanence in the body, well, that causes some suffering. right? It's that ignorance or delusion that we fall into that the body's always going to stay young and strong and healthy. That's the delusion that fuels the other two of those three poisons, the greed and hatred, the clinging, the holding on to the way we want it to be and the pushing away and not being able to be with the, what we don't want in the body. So there's a perfect example of that ignorance or that delusion not really getting it about impermanence. Another level of impermanence, so there's the one that just things change, but the, the, things don't last. But the second is, is that a whole other level is things are always in a constant change. It's not just, okay, this is here and it's pretty solid and it seems to be okay, but at some point it's, it won't be. It's like even in the moment it's changing. Right? When we really start to see more deeply, and it's one of the things that can happen in the meditation practice as our, as our ability to see uh, gets more refined, we actually come to see directly how much everything's changing moment by moment. So we can look into the body. Also, external experiences. Any experience that comes with us. I remember being on uh, many, many meditation retreats. And any of you, this is true for daily life also, but any of you who've been on meditation retreats, it just gets magnified in daily life. The difference between a meditation retreat and daily life is in the meditation retreat, it's so much easier to get distracted by everything. You know, if I'm having a hard time, Whatever my strategy is, I can go rent a movie, I can, I don't know what each of you do, maybe some of you have a friend you can call, or you can go down to the bar and have a few drinks if you do that sort of thing. I'm not a drinker, but, um, or you can go to the gym and work out. You can do something to distract ourselves. In meditation retreats, it's, it's definitely possible to find ways to distract yourself, but it's, you have to work a little harder at it because they pulled away, they've taken away a lot of the external distractions. And the idea is, is that you're just present with yourself and you do the sitting and walking practices nonstop. So not only are there no distractions, so you're faced, come face to face with everything more, but um, you're strengthening uh, the concentration and the mindfulness at the same time. And so you're seeing more clearly and so we come face to face with things. And so um, it's just easier to notice sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's easier to notice um, our suffering and then how we work with it um, than in daily life. And then we can take what we learn into daily life. That's one of the things that can happen in retreat. And so, so many times, you know, I'm sitting and I'm just in this wonderful, having a great meditation and it's blissful and I'm concentrated and clear, and the body feels good, and it's what I would call a good sit. Good only measured by really, if it was pleasant. That means good. <laughs> so then I get up, it's the end of the sit, and I go to walk, and I come back for the next sitting time, and, well, it's changed. You know, we talk about this all the time, things don't last, but then, and I'm, I'm even practicing it on retreat, but boy, all it takes is I come back the next sit, I'm here and whatever, the body's aching, or I can't concentrate, or I'm sleepy, falling asleep, or I'm restless, or 
just something going on that's hard to be present with. And I'm struggling, like, what, what happened to my good meditation I just had, like, you know, one hour ago? It, you know, it doesn't always shift that fast, but it can. And then I'm in a big struggle trying to get back this meditation that I had before. What I should be doing is being present with this and noticing how the mind works with this. How is the mind, you know, when the mind's clear and concentrated, we work in a certain way. When there's pain in the body or the mind won't settle down or anything, that's what we have to work with. Right? If we don't see that it's just changing. See, we think something went wrong. This happens all the time. You know, people come in. If any of you ever end up as Dharma teachers, you'll, you'll see this for yourself. People come into the interviews all upset because it was going great and now it's all falling apart. I've done that myself many times. And sometimes it does seem like it's falling apart and I'm not, I don't want to diminish that and, and say, you know, we do have to work with it. Sometimes, you know, a lot of emotional things can come up that are very challenging or meditative states or all kinds of things. We get sick, lots of things can happen. So I'm not saying that they're, they're, not e- that they're easy to work with because sometimes they're not. But the point is, it's like we're saying, you know, what went wrong? I'm not a good meditator or I can't do it or, or the retreat's falling apart. But no, Things change. Right? It was that. Now it's this. This won't last forever. So, so we suffer in two ways. One is we're, we're grasping and clinging to what happened in the past if we lost, lost something pleasant. And we're also, and so, so that's, and, and then we also earned, so we didn't want it to change in that case. And then when we're here with something, uh, unpleasant, we forget that it's going to change. This is going to be here forever. Right? And I remember uh, one thing Joseph Goldstein told me once that was so helpful. I was on a very long retreat, set for uh, almost a year long. And there were times when, even in that, when you get in these wonderful meditative states, sometimes you just wake up one morning or, and you're just lonely or depressed or in despair, or something's just going on. And, oh, it would be so painful. And then, um, I remember Joseph told me when those things would happen to him, he would tell himself, you know, Joseph, a month from now, you're not even going to remember this day. And it would help him hold it a little more lightly. And sure enough, as I worked with that myself, and started to realize, these, all these experiences are coming and going and changing you know, I can hold them a little more lightly. I'm not saying I never got caught in it or I never struggled, but we start to have a little more ease with it and just allowing things to arise and pass away on their own without having to make a problem about it and just find and see, what's my relationship right now with this experience? How am I being in relationship to this? If it's unpleasant, am I contracted and in a struggle with it? Or can I find a way to relax a little more around it? Or if it's super pleasant, am I holding on? Am I thinking, this is it. This is really it. And then it changes. And then I'm suffering. So we start to work with these things more as we start to come out of that ignorance or delusion and start to directly just know. Impermanence, things change. And it's in that seeing and impermanence that this letting go happens or this non-clinging happens and there's a deeper place of freedom or it's kind of a happiness. It's hard to describe these states. 
they call it a freedom or a liberation, that is just in the non-clinging as we start to just be able to be more with the ups and downs. And then we can ride through it all a lot better rather than just trying to always make it pleasant and never allowing it to be unpleasant. Okay. So, impermanence. That's important. It's talked about a lot. Second of the three characteristics, and this is going to come back again when we talk about the Four Noble Truths in a minute, is uh, what is, I'm going to actually give you the Pali word, the word in the Pali language in a moment, but let me just say in English it's often called suffering. And this is where people think the Buddha said, life is suffering, which is not exactly right. He didn't really say that. He said life is, and they use this Pali word, it's dukkha. I'll translate in a second. He said life is dukkha. Dukkha does, and this one of these words that I recommend, even if you don't like to use these Sanskrit or Pali words, this is one that you may want to just not translate. It does include suffering in all the ways we think of it. But it's more than that. A better word would be unsatisfactory. Suffering's unsatisfactory, so but other things are or unreliable. And the idea being that because of the first characteristic impermanence, the second, uh, even getting what we like and want, just as I was talking about some of these examples, is also dukkha. Not just the pain and, and the unpleasant is dukkha, but even getting everything we want is considered dukkha. In the moment, it doesn't. It's not saying it's not pleasant. It's not satisfying. It's not. Uh, it doesn't feel good. But if we're clinging and holding on to it, we're going to suffer because it won't last. So even the most satisfying or sublime experiences you can have won't last. It doesn't mean we won't have our experiences. It's not saying then disconnect from or pull away from or disassociate from or become numb. No, that's not what it's saying. Allow the expression of our lives to unfold. But it's all dukkha. It's all inherently unsatisfying. Or if you want to say it's all suffering, out coming from the clinging makes it suffering. Because of impermanence. So it's either suffering here and now or for clinging to it, we're going to suffer. That's clear. Second characteristic, that's dukkha. So everything in, that, that exists is impermanent. There's nothing that's not. Everything is dukkha. And then the third one is the one that drives people the most crazy, but it's actually not, at least conceptually, it's, it's not that hard. It's that when people think Buddhism says, there's no self. And everybody goes crazy over that one because they say, well, what do you mean there's no self? What am I? Isn't there a self here? I'm here. Yeah. We have to understand what it means. It's a third characteristic. It's the selflessness. And it's basically saying... Uh, it actually goes back to the first characteristic when we were talking about impermanence or there's this constant change. Um, that applies to us as beings too. It's not like there's this... When I, If you normally just feel inside, just try it for a moment, feel inside, and just to look and see who am I, what am I? 
Let's take a moment just to try and get a sense of something. Don't, don't go too crazy, but just real in a light way. Who am I? What am I? I'm guessing, for most of us, and we'll have some discussion time later if, if this isn't true. You maybe want to share about it. But I'm guessing for most of us, what you find is you can't really get at who am I and what I am. But there is a, there is a whatever the you is there. There's something here that I call me. I can't quite get what it is, but there's something is aware. Is right. knows, experiences all this, that all this happens to. What the Buddhist teaching is saying, when we actually look closer, and this is one of the things we can see directly, we see there's no permanent Richard inside here to whom all this is happening. That just like everything's impermanent and changing, changing, changing constantly, even what I am as a being is changing, changing, changing. So I am, there is a self, but what that self is, is a collection of changing experiences. Right? So another level of, of the delusion or the ignorance is not seeing ourselves clearly. So we'll just take a few moments and do a very, we, we could do a whole talk on this idea of selflessness, but we'll just quickly look. Certainly we talked earlier about the body, the physical body, and you can, you know, pretty easy to see that there's nothing fixed and permanent in there. It's changing. Don't they say that every, something like every seven years, every, you're nodding, is it every cell or every atom in your body? I've heard that. I've never heard of it. I've seen any elevation of it. Yeah. But anyway, I have heard this, that it's all been changed out. Every molecule or cell has been replaced by, so, so it's sort of like if you take, you know, whatever, I'll take professional, like the San Francisco Giants baseball team, right? So how long have the Giants been here? I don't know, but however many decades, right? So if you go back to everybody connected with the San Francisco Giants in the, uh, when they first started, I don't know the history. Some of you, may, may, maybe they were somewhere else before they came to San Francisco, but just say they came to San Francisco or whatever. I don't know, the 50s, the 40s, the 60s, whenever it was, maybe earlier. None of the players are the same now that we're there. The managers, the staff. I mean, maybe there's one person left who's like the oldest bat boy you know, in the league who's now 90 or something, but probably not 90. The owners have changed. The stadium's not the same. The equipment's not the same. Right? The uniforms have changed. There is nothing the same as... But we say... That's the San Francisco Giants. Oh yeah, the same team that's been in San Francisco for whatever, 50 years. Well, that's how it is for us. We go, well, this is me. Well, let's just take the body. Yes, there is a, a continuity. So it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of mysterious. So we, we can say on one level it is accurate to say it's the same body. That's true on the conventional level. So we're not throwing away the conventional view, but we're just saying, you know, it's worth taking a look on a more of an ultimate view of what's really happening. When we really step back and we say, this thing I call my body, the same body I had when I was born, you know, there's really nothing's there that was there before, but it's, it's changed, right? But it's not just the body. Everything that's the non-physical, for example, um, we know that thoughts are not permanent, right? Thoughts come and go. 
the process of thinking is a changing process. There is a process that's going on. The body's a process too. That's what we are as beings. We're a conscious process. Emotions, have you ever had the same emotion? No. Sometimes you're happy, sad, fear, worry, joy, boredom, <laughs> contentment, whatever. Different feelings, different psychological states, perceptions change. Um, and people then often say, yeah, but that knowing place, that conscious aware place, that's the part that's the... But even consciousness is not permanent. It's not. I think, I can't remember if we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but let's just say it again because it bears repeating. I think I used the example of, often do if any of you have had a general anesthesia for surgery. I'm sure some people have, and for those who hadn't, it, it, it's kind of like if you go to deep dreamless sleep. Uh, yeah. But it's basically, where are you? Have you ever had general anesthesia? Gone. You're just, and the, the, the way I like to say it is, there's an on-off switch of existence, and the existence switch has just been flipped off because in general anesthesia, I mean, really, it's not like you're dreaming. I mean, just the switch is off. <laughs> then at some point, it's back on. And you're, where were you? Where was consciousness then? It's not the same consciousness now. You don't know because the, the knowing faculty is not even happening. So consciousness itself is where, where it went or not. I mean, we could philosophize and speculate about that all day long. I don't know. Nobody knows. I guess they can do brain scans, but that probably doesn't even answer it. So, the closer and closer we look into our own being, we start to see that there's nothing fixed and permanent. It's all just a changing flow, a changing process. That's what the third characteristic of selflessness means. It means nothing permanent. There's no permanent me in here to whom it's happening. There's just this, even the awareness and the knowing and the experiencing is just a changing flow. There's no experiencer. There's just the flow of experience. So don't go too crazy on that if, if, if you don't get that. Um, uh, it's something that you can come to see more directly. Or then you say, well, what do you mean you can come to see it? Who's the you that comes to see it? It can be just revealed. I'll just use passive voice verbs. Right? That's another level, if we don't see into, clearly into, it's an, another level of ignorance or delusion. If we don't really see that selfless nature, then that fuels the greed and the hatred, the clinging that happens around this fixed sense of who I am. And then when we're not clinging, but that comes as the, as the delusion and ignorance as we start to see who we are more, we stop constricting around some fixed view of ourselves a negative way we constrict around is we get identified with maybe it's poor self-esteem or shame issues or some traumas happen that we're all caught in. All these different things that can happen in our lives where we really get caught. That's the way we're really fixed, fixated and identified. That starts to loosen. We could be more present with it all. Or maybe you've got a real positive fixed sense of self. You know, that would be someone who was all kind of puffed up or arrogant or if you take it to an extreme. Nothing having, being positive is not always puffed up and arrogant. I'm just trying to take it out to an extreme for an example. Well, that might be positive, but still that's a way of clinging identity and, um, you know, um, might, might be less suffering in a moment than, than a negative uh, fixated view, I don't know. 
but uh, it certainly doesn't allow for frust. You know, where where does fear and doubt and worry and vulnerability and all come into that? I mean, there's all, it has its own set of problems. Won't get into that. So any time we get a fixed set of ourselves, then we can't just allow ourselves to be. That's the whole point. And to the point we're not clinging around it, then we don't deny any part of ourselves. We just have a more relaxed presence with, our, with who and what we are. Just let ourselves be. That's this popular book that uh, these days that called Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. That's what it's talking about. You know, so many people are struggling with shame or self-esteem or fear or guilt or so many different things that are difficult. This book, Radical Acceptance, is talking about that place where we're not so contracted around it that we can let ourselves be. So these are these three characteristics. Impermanence, dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactory, whatever you want to call it, and no permanent self. Right? Not seeing clearly into those is a delusion because we just then live out of, we don't real, we, we think we are. We're not even noticing most of the time some fixed idea of self. We don't realize that other things are impermanent, right? We, ought, we don't know about dukkha, so we're constantly looking for our happiness and well being only in trying to set up circumstances in a certain way. Not trying to say you have to stop setting up your life in however you want it to be or take care of yourself. We don't want to be clinging around it, that's all. It may all be dukkha, but you should still pay your bills, have enough food, shelter, all the things we need. Okay. So, that's the three characteristics. So then how does that relate to this Four Noble Truths? That's a, so the first noble truth, this is foundational dharma. First noble truth is the noble truth of dukkha. That ever, like we said, it's the same as the third, second characteristic. This suffering or unsatisfactoriness or unreliable nature to things. And it's saying everything's inherently unsatisfying, as we mentioned. And then we create a real level of suffering if we try to cling to it. So it's really the clinging that causes the problem. If we're not clinging to things, then it's, things are still inherently unsatisfying. Un, reliable and satisfactory, but we're not having a problem about it because we're just at peace with things as they are. That's the idea. Second noble truth is what is that the cause of... The, so the first noble truth was that there's this dukkha that comes from clinging. The second noble truth is the cause of the clinging is craving. The word in Pali is tanha, which means thirst. So it's desire, but we're really talking about uh, a craving kind of desire. Um, it's a desire that causes us. So it, it's the desire of don't want to feel this unpleasantness and really want to have more pleasant. That's the desire that then leads the mind to, to cling, to grasp. So it's that ignorance of not seeing, how, seeing these truths that, that are causing the suffering that causes us then to the greed and the hatred. The third noble truth then says there is an ending of this dukkha which is in Sanskrit nirvana or in Pali nibbana. So then that's the whole thing. Well, what's nirvana? What's nibbana? But for, for tonight we'll just say it's the end of suffering. 
or the end of dukkha. So this is a teaching that's a liberation through non-clinging leading to an end of suffering. Think about that sometime if, the, for example, if the idea of no self starts to kind of freak you out, <laughs> seem a little scary. Remember, this, that, if that's happening, you're suffering. Right? When we start to see a little more around the, this truth, using this example of selflessness, and the mind starts to let go, there's a real relief that happens, actually. And we still can live and be, but we're not clinging around it so, itself so much. And that's where it leads to the end of the suffering. It's the end of the clinging. Okay. And the fourth noble truth, which, which we won't go into tonight, is called the, eightfold, the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's, it's the path of Dharma practice. And it basi- I'll just say this about it. It's basically divided into eight different pieces, but it's really three sections that these eight pieces fall into. There's the morality piece, which is how we live and act in the world that's non-harming, that's not stealing, that's not abusing sexuality in a way that causes suffering, being wise and careful with speech. Things like this, how we live and act. They call it the morality section. That's the foundation. And there's the meditation section, which is developing concentration and mindfulness, things like the Vipassana practice that trains the mind to be more clear. And then finally, there's the wisdom piece that, that comes out of these practices. It's the wisdom is the place that gets free of this ignorance. When we're not caught in the ignorance, we see things how we are, how they are, and then we're not caught up in the reaction. We're not grasping on or in aversion so much. You don't have to be completely enlightened. I don't know what that's like. If we had to be completely enlightened, we're all in big trouble. We're in big trouble. But we can just start to loosen more and more. And then we can just live in a place with quiet minds and open hearts. Which is heading us towards this uh, Nibbana. Heading us in that direction. To that ending of suffering. That's it. That's the whole Dharma. Everything else is um, just various ways to talk about it, different tools, different views about it, different angles we take on it. You know, there's so much that can be said. You know, volumes and volumes. You know, bookshelves filled of, of books with all the teachings. But it's just some version of this. This is why the Buddha said that he summarized his entire teaching as nothing should be clung to as I, me, or mine. The I in me is a sense of self or mine, any experience. It's the identification and clinging. That's the problem. When we free ourselves from hatred, greed, and delusion, we're freeing ourselves from the clinging. And then, well, what is that like to live in a way where, you know, what would it be like to live in a way where we're not grasping and clinging on or the flip side or the aversion pushing away? I would like to suggest that every one of us have experienced that many times. We've all had experiences where in a given moment we were probably quite at ease and at peace and we weren't clinging or in aversion. We weren't that even self-conscious. The sense of self, there still was us 
having an experience, but it may not have been so self-referential. We tend not to even notice those moments. They might have not. They may have seemed quite unremarkable. But it was a place of being perfectly at peace and at ease. We've all experienced that. The only problem is, is because we haven't uprooted the conditioning in the mind, the habitual patterns that are going to get in reaction when certain experiences come to us, the seeds of hatred, greed, and delusion aren't uprooted. So that when the, the conditions are right, certain experiences come and then we're hooked right back in. So it's just a process of uprooting those seeds over and over. People often think that you know when you really make progress in the meditation that you're walking around in some meditative state all the time. And people who've been meditating for a long time think I'm not making any progress. You know. And I don't want to diminish the meditative states. They are a big deal. And those some of that can carry through, especially if we're keeping up our practice. Uh, we can have the, the mindfulness, the concentration, it can carry through a lot. That place of just open, spacious awareness, there's many ways, and it does deepen. And yet, on a much deeper level than that, it's not about any particular meditative state we're supposed to enter. Because remember, everything's impermanent and unsatisfactory, including those states. But what happens is that conditioning of those seeds tendencies towards hatred, greed, and delusion get uprooted more and more and we're just resting at ease in a place of peace. That's the inner peace that comes from meditation. And I'll just end with this. There's two kinds of peace. One kind of peace is where things are kind of cooled out and calm and tranquil and we're not being buffeted around by a lot of different experiences. We're just at ease. I'm not in a light of greed, I'm not in a lot of hatred, things are okay. So there's not a lot coming up. That is a real relief from suffering. Right? So that's important and we want, we want to learn how to get to those places more when we need them. And then there's a second level of peace which uh, is not dependent on the experience. So even when we're not feeling um, tranquil or calm or peaceful. There could be a lot going on. Our lives can be quite agitated and the mind can be going and all kinds of stuff happening. And in a whole other level of that, we rest at peace with that. There's a whole deeper level that's not agitated by it. You can have an agitated mind and, and at the heart of your being um, be clear and awake and, and free in the midst of even that. Right? That's a different kind of peace. The kind of peace that doesn't depend, on, it's independent of experience. So I'm going to stop here and we can now have some time if anyone has any, either if you have questions, that's fine, or if anything you want to share or comments, that's fine. Uh, one thing we said was is that if we need to pull off the microphones, we can. If it's just a question, um, just because it gets to be kind of cumbersome sending the microphones all around. I would just, I'll just repeat the question. If you have a comment, I suppose we could pull out the mics if we need to, right, and send them around. Yeah, so let's just see what's up, if anything. Do you need a mic? Yes. Um, you mentioned about having the second way of having peace in the midst of, of turmoil and stuff happening in your life. How do you 
that? How do you do it? And, and what is that? Well, let's just use a, a small example here. Um, example that we use all the time. Say you're sitting in meditation. Have you ever sat in meditation and had any physical discomfort? Right. And you've probably sat in meditation without physical discomfort too. You've probably experienced both, right? So that's an example of the two differences I'm, I'm talking about. Um, if you're sitting in meditation, you have whatever experience you're having, and then there's no discomfort, so there's a peace there. Right? Now, as some discomfort starts to creep in, maybe it hits you all at once, but a lot of times it starts to get stronger and stronger and stronger as it creeps in. You don't wait till it gets the strongest, but just as it starts to come in, you can, have you ever found that you've been able to be present with that discomfort and still just be with it okay and not have a problem and, and work with it? Is that ever, have you ever had that experience? Yeah. That's an example of being able to still stay at, at ease and at peace, clear and awake without getting jerked around, not getting caught up in reaction, even when something is coming up now. That's, maybe in this case it's unpleasant. And then it's interesting to work. Uh, we can, over time, we can work with it as even gets stronger and stronger and stronger if you want. At some point you might choose to move your leg out and stretch it and relieve it. If, you know, there'll be a time for that too. But at some point, you know, we don't want to always, we don't want to never, we don't want to deny ourselves the opportunity to try and work with some difficulty sometimes just to see, especially as the concentration, the mindfulness strengthens, then we've really got the tools to be present. If we don't have strong concentration of mindfulness, maybe it's not so easy. And at those times, maybe, you know, we need that strength of the mind sometimes. Then we can start to be present with it more and more and more. So there's an example. That, do you understand the difference I'm saying there? Yeah, it is the reaction. Right. Yeah, it's the reaction of the, to the situation. That's right. It's not the, It's never the situation itself. And so, um, for example, sitting here tonight, earlier the car alarm went off. Right. Now, for some people, and I've had the experience where something like that happens, and it's just like you know, oh, that why won't they be quiet out there? It's ruining my meditation. I've experienced that many times. Tonight I was in a place, I just happened to be very concentrated and I was just pretty deep in the practice. And it, if whether it kept going or not, it just it, did, it, it was there. I wasn't pushing away. It was all happening. And yet I was still untouched and unmoved. The mind was not moved by it. It's, it, it's, it's what... Um, I'm not saying I never get moved by anything, but I'm just saying that was the experience then. So there's the qu- quote, and I don't have it here, so I'll, I'll miss... I won't get it exactly but often quoted, because it's such a great quote by Ajahn Chah when he talks about uh, making your mind like a still forest pool. This is what he's talking about. He says, you know, you make your mind like a still forest pool. So what's a still forest pool? It's clear, it's tranquil, it's calm. He says, all kinds of rare and wonderful animals will come to drink at the pool. In other words, all kinds of experiences are going to come to you. The ups, the downs, the, the mind, the emotions... Everything in your being is still happening. So he says, make your mind like a clear forest pool. All kinds of rare and under wonderful animals will come. You will see them all come and go. And yet you will be still. And then you'll know the happiness and freedom of the Buddha. So to really taste that, the question is, that's where practice comes in. And so we can each, medit- if, if, if for those of us who are drawn to 
meditation practice in whatever form, this is something you can see how much you're drawn to work with it. You have to put some, most people have to put some time in and effort, especially in the beginning, to because it's it's hard. Your know, minds aren't trained. It's not a judgment on anyone, but it's just you know you have to put some effort. And once you do, it will tend to develop the concentration, the mindfulness. And then you actually start to experience for yourself, oh, what is that to be? And, and it really strengthens both, the ability to just chill out, calm down, settle everything out and be in that kind of peace where there's not much coming up going on, and the place that can actually be present in the midst of all kinds of things happening and to, and to not be reactive and to, and to really be in just a... Uh, a I keep using this word, a place of peace even in the midst of that. So it's something to be experienced. It's a concept we can have and then we need to practice more and more. So how do we practice? Well, um, doing like these meditation kind of practices will, will strengthen that. And in any time in our life is a time, any time there's a situation that comes up, in any moment if we can be mindful and awake, and then we can start to notice. There will be times when something will just be too much for us and we, uh, you know, we just can't really find the peace because it, went, it just crossed over our ability. And then we just have to know, you know, this is too much. <laughs> um, I need to move the leg or I need to get away from this. Or, and we want to pay attention to the times when, when we start to react and then we start to catch ourselves and those, oh, well, can I start, can I let go around this? And we just start to work with it. And that's it. Any other questions, comments? Yes. Um, the idea of shunyata, I think I'm saying it right, yeah, the idea of emptiness. Yes. Shunyata, is that the um, same thing as no self only? Not to do with right. self, but. With everything, yeah, yeah. Right, so this, she's asking this question of emptiness, which is a term that does come out in the early... So, so our tradition comes out of a form of Buddhism, one of the early schools of Buddhism, and then later schools of Buddhism called like Mahayana, some of the Zen traditions, for example, the Tibetans and others. Uh, this idea of emptiness is, is found everywhere, but it really came to prominence and was more fully developed in the later schools of Buddhism it gets talked about. But it's exactly what we're talking about here. That in anything, it, when, when, when they use the term emptiness, they just mean, and so they're going to say it in this way and I'll explain. They'll say everything is empty of inherent existence and they'll, talk, they'll use this word like the void, voidness. Those aren't, emptiness, voidness aren't really, people tend not to really like the sound of that very much. But all it means is in the same... It doesn't mean nothing's happening. But it means in the same way we were talking... Exactly the same way we were talking about self. That it is here, it is happening. But it's all changing. There's no, we say it's empty of inherent existence. It exists. But it doesn't, it doesn't have some permanent eternal essence. Things are just coming and going. Arising and passing away. Everything's like that. So just think of it this way. Pick any experience. We'll just say a sound. Right? Sound arises or some cause. Sound arises and passes away. So there's something happening there for a while and then, when, and then it fades out and it's gone. Now, was, 
there was no essence there. There was just a, something, a phenomenon happening. And when it's gone, is there any essence of the sound left? No, we say it was empty of that essence. It was just there, but there wasn't any permanent peace to it. There's no eternal whatever. And that just happens to be true of everything. So that's this idea of emptiness. Once again, when you see into emptiness, which is another way of talking about seeing into these three characteristics, it's really just different language. It's all around then that identification and clinging that gets let go of. Does that, is that clear? It makes sense? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have time. One more, please go ahead, and then we'll end. Doesn't seem like anybody else has anything. <laughs> well, I was thinking about um, the idea of soul. Yes. In um, a lot of religions. Right. Um, does Buddhism uh, have an idea of like a soul? Then? No. Okay. So. When no idea of soul in Buddhism, but I, I'll, I can say something about that if you like. Okay. Right. Buddhism doesn't tend to talk, use the term reincarnation so much. It uses the term rebirth. Had a little bit different sense because reincarnation sort of has it's like, like there's this eternal essence that's sort of reincarnated. And re, Buddhism doesn't talk about this eternal essence. We actually touched on this the first week, so and we're running out of time. So I'll just say it very quickly. What we're talking about here in um, in all of these teachings are about teachings of what we'll call the conventional world or conventional reality. Impermanence and all this stuff, right? And the Buddha didn't really go to that place of, you know, is there a soul or is there not a soul or sort of these, what you might call metaphysical kind of questions or transcendent type realities and everything. He really didn't talk about that very much and he said the reason is is that we can speculate on that all you want. And it's not really going to do us any good. Because even if, you know, the Buddha was here and said, yeah, you have a soul, okay, you still, we still have suffering due to hatred, greed, and delusion. We still have to deal with that. And he says, if we can deal with, in the, at the end of the day, what you're left is, is, is we, here we are, beings in the world, and we, 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 all we have is how we think, how we speak, how we act. There isn't anything else. And so we're paying attention to how we speak and think and act. And the idea was he taught truths of the conventional reality that when deeply understood led to direct experience of the deeper truths. So we're not talking about is there a soul or not. or is The Buddha was very explicit about this. He explicitly said he's just not going there. So he just said, let's put it this way, in anything that you can see and experience, there's nothing permanent there that you can hold on to. And if you want to say, oh, there's the soul, well, we can say that. I mean, you know, I, I, if I kind of go, okay, where's the, the soul? I try to go inside, can I get it? Can I, feel, I don't know. It's just a concept to me. And what these teachings are trying, does that make sense why they just tend not to talk like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea, let's think of it another way. If I'm not, cl- if I'm not clinging to or identified with anything that we normally cling to and identify, and that falls away. Well, what's left? Is there some deeper, when there's something deeper, you know, when everything is just, 
you know, arising, passing away, in its, you know, or is said being revealed in its own true nature is the way they'll talk about it, without us uh, putting our views and opinions and clinging onto it. Then what's left? So anyway, Buddhism just, just tells us pay attention to what we can actually pay attention to. And then, then the, the deeper truths just reveal themselves. In other words, if we're not carving out something separate that we're clinging to, and we let go of that, then we're... Sometimes people will say, the Buddha didn't really talk like that, he goes, if we think we're separate, little separate beings, that's not true view. And then what we really see is that we're one with everything. The Buddha didn't say that either. If you think you're separate, that's, uh, that's actually a delusion. What is, then do I, that means I must, I'm not separate, so I must be one with everything. Well, he's not saying that either. We, we, you know, uh, who's the you that's one with everything? We don't identify with any of it and just let it be. That's kind of the Buddhist place. Right? You can have experiences of being one with everything and of the soul and all that kind of stuff. I've had experiences like that, meditative experiences like that. And like everything else, they're impermanent. I'm not having that experience right now. So, you know, we just don't want to cling to that either. I don't know, I can't go off on this whole thing. That's a big question. Okay. Yeah. If there's impermanence and things are rising and, and, and falling and there's no inherent uh, existence, then what is our purpose? What's the purpose? Yeah, what's the purpose of our life? I don't know what the purpose of our life is. I, I don't. I'm not trying to be glib. Um, so I would tend to, I mean, sometimes people will say things that, that I th- find very attractive. They'll say, well, the purpose is to realize the truth or come to the deeper, become, you know, it sounds great, but I don't know what the purpose is. I don't even know how we got here. All I know is here we are. <laughs> It's all happening. As a matter of fact, uh, and this will we'll end with this, there's these four, what are called four imponderables. Things that the Buddha said, another, there's all these lists, the four imponderables, where the Buddha said, there's these four things, don't even try to figure it out, because if you do, first of all, you can't. You just won't be able to, and second of all, it's just going to cause you a, a giant headache and a lot of suffering. One of those imponderables, I'll just name them because you probably, maybe everybody will go over to the other three. One of them is the, what's, what's the mind of a Buddha like? Second one is the complexities of karma. Just, you know, and all that. And so we won't, won't even think about that. Don't worry if you don't know what that is. Third one is the range of possible experiences in some of the deeper meditative states that you can go into. If you really get a lot of concentration, you can have all these experiences. Just what's possible. And then the fourth one, which is, I just mentioned that for completeness. Uh, the fourth one is, how did all this get started? Existence itself and beings and world systems and births and deaths and all that. Just how did it get started? The Buddha said, you know, just let it go. And he just said, here we are. We're in the human condition. What are we going to do? So for me personally, and I'm not saying this should be the way it is for anyone else, but I'm just saying for me personally, I don't think in terms of the purpose of life. I just don't happen to use that that phrase or that word. 
I tend to think of it more in all I know is that what seems to be important to me in life is can I deepen in coming to live life as a free, conscious, and loving being? Can I live my life in a way that creates less suffering for myself and others and leads to more happiness and freedom and liberation for myself and others? Whether that is the purpose of life, I don't know, but um, it, it, it seems to be the only thing that makes sense on the deeper level. I'm not saying having your job doesn't make sense and all that. That makes sense too. But on the deeper level of really what my life is about, that just seems to me to be what makes sense to do. So I just leave it at that. I don't know if that's helpful or not. That, I don't know how, you know, how can I, I don't know what, you know, if, if I ever hear anybody say this is the purpose of life, I don't know, you don't want to get into judging people, but it's just like, well, what, did God like, tell you that? Or I mean, who knows, you know? Anyway. So, yeah. Well, let's just end. And I see we're up against the clock, so um, we literally have about two minutes. Um, so we'll just end very quickly with a little sharing of merit. So this idea of sharing of merit is this very beautiful idea that um, we don't practice, we don't do any of this for ourselves alone. And so I would invite you to reflect, take a moment reflect that, first of all, that we've used our time wisely this evening. Coming together to meditate, so to uh, cultivate some, well, these qualities of concentration, mindfulness, regardless of whether it felt to you like you were concentrated or mindful, but we're, we're, we're practicing. We're directing our minds. You know, you, you, you had a, a motivation to do that practice, which sometimes is not easy. And then to talk, reflect on these Dharma teachings, and so any time we cultivate these wholesome qualities in ourselves of love, of compassion, of wisdom, of clarity of mind, of ability to be more present and less reactive and to let our minds settle down and our hearts open, both to ourselves and others, it's of great benefit, of course, to ourselves, but it's also of great benefit to other beings. And in fact, it's not possible to practice for ourselves alone. And it's important to recognize that, even if you're not conscious of it. Any time you cultivate these qualities in yourself, it's also going to be a benefit to others. And so, let us end by making that more conscious and offering up, it can be a prayer or a wish or an intention. If there's been any goodness or merit generated or obtained by our time together this evening, may it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful and may all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all very much. I hope you have a good evening and enjoy the... Uh, this incredible day we've had after all this rain. <laughs>